0: Guten Morgen. Wir sind wieder da. Wir hatten eine tolle Zeit in Deutschland. Danke zu unseren Freunden in Deutschland. Wir sind dankbar für alles, was Sie getan haben. Wir vermissen dich schon. Wir hoffen Sie bald zu sehen. Yes, we had a good time in Germany. (laughs) And uh, we're glad to be back. And the programs in Germany were very, very well attended. We, uh, the first weekend we were there did, uh, five programs in Aachen. And the, uh, the evening programs were, uh, filled to the capacity where they had to actually broadcast in, into the lobby, um, the programs on video monitors for the overflow crowd. And 80% of the attendees, uh, in Aachen were from the community. They were not the church, church crowd. And it was very, very well received. Um, we, as you know, integrated science and scripture, and it led to um, many of the people coming up afterwards and asking questions about God and, and spiritual development and so forth. It was very positively received. what wasn't rejected at all. And then the following weekend in Cologne, we uh, did uh, four programs at the church there in Cologne, and about 80% of the people in attendance there were the church members. They had about maybe 15 to 20% uh, guests from the community, and it was also uh, very well received. Everything that we did uh, was translated into German. But let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study today. We ask that your uh, spirit would be with us, that our hearts would be brought into harmony and in tune with you, that our minds will see you more clearly, and that you will enable us to take a message of healing to this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. I want to thank Russell and Tim for uh, carrying the class along while I was out of town. Today we're doing, in our quarterly, Garments of Grace Clothing Imagery in the Bible, we're doing lesson number 11, titled The Wedding Garment. The Wedding Garment. And somebody want to read the memory text for us, which is Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Why? The question, why? Why is there no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Did you ask the question or did you ask what the reason is? What are the explanations given? I listed four possible explanations that I've heard why there's no condemnation.
1: Cuz Jesus,
0: Jesus took the condemnation. And how does that prevent us from being condemned? <coughs> he took our place. He took our place. So, Jesus took the, the the legal penalty price upon himself, so God cannot legally condemn us. We're no longer condemned by God cuz the, the Christ took the condemnation and paid the penalty. That's one explanation. Yes?
2: Jesus said he, he didn't come here to condemn anyone.
0: That's exactly what he said in John chapter 3. He did not come to condemn, but to save. Yes?
2: There's no condemnation in Christ because there's no condemnation in God. and Christ is the, is the exact manifestation of God.
0: So, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus because Christ is... Maybe we should ask the question, what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Well, here's the explanations I came up with, the the ones that are often put out there. We mentioned one, the legal price has been paid. God can't condemn us now because Christ has paid our our, our penalty. Or Jesus stands between us and the Father. When the Father looks at us, he sees his son. Therefore, the Father doesn't condemn us because he doesn't see us, he sees his son. Or Jesus pleads to his Father for mercy and the Father acquiesces to the pleas of his son and doesn't condemn us. Um, This is another explanation I've heard. And then those in Jesus are... In unity of heart and mind with him, and have been recreated in heart, mind, attitude, to be like Jesus. Thus, when the Father looks at us, he sees the perfection of his Son restored within the believer. Yeah, as Jesus prayed in John 17, Father, I pray that I am in you, you're in me. I pray that they will be in us. Remember this all this in business going on in John 17? Yeah. What's it talking about?
2: Yeah. Well, going along with the same thing, Moffat's translation says, In union with.
0: In union with.
2: And so you would not be condemning members of your own team. Yeah,
0: in union with. I like it. And it's gonna play out as we go through the wedding garment. And what is a wedding? You say? Isn't a wedding just as we just a grand overview right now of two people coming into union with each other? Isn't that what a wedding is? Yeah. Into unity? Well this is out of a, a book called Faith I Live By. Has anybody heard that book? Yes. By an author named Ellen White. And um uh, she uh, quotes Romans eight one and then comments on it here. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. If sinners can be led to give one earnest look at the cross, if they can obtain a f- full view of the crucified Savior, they will realize the depth of God's compassion and the sinfulness of sin. First notice the contrast that's being set up here. We have a compassionate God on one hand, We have sinfulness of sin on the other hand. We're contrasting two things. It says, as your conscience has been quickened by the Holy Spirit, so something's happening within us. The Holy Spirit's doing something to us here. Cleansing, quickening, sensitizing, healing the the conscience. The conscience, we're being changed by the word of the Holy Spirit. The conscience is being quickened. You have seen something of the evil of sin, of its power, its guilt, its woe, Where is all this evil coming from? From sin. It has guilt. It has woe. And you look upon it with abhorrence. You long to be forgiven, to be cleansed. Remember what what Bible forgiveness is? Bible forgiveness is not mere legal pardon, but it is a transforming process where we get a new heart and right spirit. We're changing the inner man. And that's why it says, you long to be forgiven, comma, to be cleansed. They're one and the same in Bible parlance. To be set free. Harmony with God, likeness to him. That's what we're longing for, and this is what can you do to obtain it. It is peace that you need. Heaven's forgiveness and peace and love in the soul. Heaven's regeneration, new heart, right spirit, and peace and love in the soul. Money cannot buy it. Intellect cannot procure it. Wisdom cannot attain it. You can never hope by your own efforts to secure it, but God offers it to you as a gift without money and without price. Go to him and ask that he will wash away your sins and give you a new heart. Where do you think our sins are being washed away from? The record books of heaven? The historical facts of what's transpired in the universe? Or from our characters, our minds, our hearts? Notice, he will wash away your sins and give you a new heart. We are the ones being cleansed. Then believe that he does this because he has promised. It is our privilege to go to Jesus and be cleansed and to stand before the law without shame and remorse. Why do we stand before the law without shame and remorse? Because we're clean, because we're healthy, because we're no longer out of harmony with it, because we've been changed. As you read the promises, remember, they are the expression of unutterable love and pity. Yes, only believe that, you're, that God is your helper. He wants to restore his moral image in man. So what does it mean? Why do we stand? And you, it says, therefore, there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Now notice, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. The text itself tells us those who are in Christ Jesus have been changed so they don't live in harmony with the principles of self-centeredness anymore, the flesh. They now live in harmony with the Spirit, the principles of other-centered love, because they've had a change of heart. That's why there's no condemnation. It'd be no different than saying there is no condemnation to those Ebola-infected patients who have taken a remedy and are now well. They're not condemned anymore. That's what it's saying. Do you hear the healing message and what I read from Faith I Live By? The transforming message? Yeah. Let's be very clear. Sin severs our connection with God, damages us, and ultimately brings death. God is constantly working and always working to destroy sin and save sinners. Like a doctor is always working to destroy disease and save patients. All right, first paragraph, it says, Christian history is full of dark passages. Horrible things have been done by professed followers of Christ. And according to our understanding of prophecy, more evil will be done in his name, too, before Jesus returns. How can this happen? What would be necessary, what would be the errors or missteps required for Christians to do horrible things in the name of Christ?
2: Misunderstanding of who God is
0: and what He wants them to do. Okay. misunderstanding of who God is and what He wants them to do. Other thoughts. I agree completely. Other thoughts. By
1: beholding, we become changed.
0: By beholding, we become changed. So, uh, accepting a false view of God, we assimilate those principles into our character and we act on them. So, if we have a God who is arbitrary, severe, exacting, unforgiving, demanding, legal payment have to be paid, uh, must punish in order to be just, punishment comes out from God. As, a, as an infliction, then, then ultimately we as a society must model ourselves after that and we must do the same. Yes?
2: If we believe God's word is this particular thing and we want to help him do his work, but we have the wrong idea of what he's doing.
0: Yeah. As I said many times, there's nothing more dangerous in this world than someone on a mission for God who doesn't know God. That's about the most dangerous thing in the world.
2: Also in the paragraph it says professed followers of Christ though so those who appear to be Christians may have ulterior motives that have nothing to do with Christ in the first place.
0: And this is the other element that I think besides a misunderstanding of God the other big main one is unconversion passing as conversion especially in leadership. Unconverted people passing as if they've been converted to Christianity. And so the question is what contributes to this idea of a person being converted when they're not converted? Could it be a false idea of what conversion actually is? So what's conversion? Let's talk about that. What is it to be converted? What's conversion? In the first 300 years after Christ, what did it take to be converted? What did it take to be a Christian in the first 300 years after Christ? I want you to see this. Yeah.
3: It would take an understanding of who Christ was. Of of, having Christ be revealed to the mind as God and a definition of God.
0: (laughs) That's conversion. We have evidence, scripture evidence from this, in the book of Acts there's a eunuch traveling along reading the book of Isaiah and Philip comes along and explains to him what Isaiah is talking about and the eunuch says well there's water, what what, what hinders us? Let's get baptized. And Philip of course at that point says, well we have 28 fundamental beliefs. (laughs) We have to review first and you must ascribe to these no. What happened? He was over. He was baptized. And converted. First 300 years after Christ, the only thing it took to be a Christian was accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. Guess what happened in the fourth century, 340 AD, somewhere around there.
2: Constantine.
0: Constantine converted, and guess what Constantine after, did, did after his conversion? The
2: checklist.
0: He told the Bishop of Rome, known today as the Pope. The Pope to give me a doctrinal checklist so I can determine who meets Christian standards and who's not meeting Christian standards. Who's part of my political party, who's not part of my political party. And so now we have the first doctrinal checklist that you have to meet this doctrinal checklist. And if you don't meet this doctrinal checklist, you're not Christian. This is where it started, with Constantine. And so now we can be converted... After Constantine, we can have conversion by not accepting Christ, but accepting a doctrinal checklist. And if I accept the Sabbath, and I accept the state of the dead, and I accept no smoking and no alcohol and healthy diet, and I accept the heavenly sanctuary, and I accept the inspiration of Ellen White, and I accept the, you know, go down the 28, I can accept all those and still not know Christ. And I can claim that, and of course I can accept that Jesus is the Son of God, it's one of our 28, and the Trinity, and all these doctrinal cognitive conceptions and accepting, I can accept all these cognitively, and still not be converted, because what is actual conversion? A new heart. Heart, A new heart from what, to what?
3: What is it?
0: There it is, bingo. True conversion is very simple. We are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Our, our hearts are wired to self-preservation and me first. Watch out for number one. That's our first birth. That's what John, uh, Jesus said in John 3 to, to Nicodemus, that you had to be born again because something was wrong with that first birth. And so we're born in sin, selfishness, and fear, and security, survival the fittest. And then when we are reborn, our heart now has a motive that, hey, I don't want to be watching out for me primarily. I actually want to love others. I want to love God greatest... Commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. This is a converted person. Even if they don't... Can you be converted, have a heart that you really love other people more than self, that you would give your life to protect others and not know about the Sabbath? Can that happen? Yes. Or eat the wrong foods? Yes. This is the core issue. And unconversion happens when you eat the right foods, go to church on the right day, keep the sanctuary holy, and all these things, and as the Jews did 2,000 years ago, and crucified Christ. They had their doctrinal checklist, but they didn't have hearts changed. And I think we've somehow gotten confused between two types of conversion. Conversion to a system, to an organization, to a political party, to an institution, and conversion to Christ with a heart and mind that's renewed. What do you all think? Am I saying it too hard?
3: Any, no. Any packaging,
1: whether it is keeping a SDA checklist or a Catholic checklist, That's right.
0: No, exactly. Yeah. But
1: any packaging that does not restore the heart and the relationship in that true heart relationship is what I understand you to be saying. But any packaging uh, would be a false conversion.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Any, any packaging that, that avoids the heart transformation. Exactly. Yes.
2: This is why it talks about that the strongest witness for Christ is your personal revelation of what He's done in your life.
0: To change life.
2: It's not about all the good things about Him. It's not all the attributes of Him. You can accept that intellectually, but unless you accept Him as your Savior, it's worthless.
0: I agree. I agree. No, I agree completely.
1: The idiot thing else is just an element of being able to dodge or hide from uh, that true uh, giving up completely. Okay.
0: That's exactly right. That's exactly right, and that's why it became so convenient for Constantine and for the system to create a checklist of external rules. Paul, Paul prior to his conversion, Saul, he had his checklist. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees, and. And he thought he was converted. He wasn't converted. Peter, prior to his denial of Christ, Christ said to him Thursday night, prior to the crucifixion, when you're converted, feed my sheep. He hadn't been converted yet, even though he'd been with Christ three and a half years. Why? Because even though he loved Christ, he still loved himself more than Christ. And that's the key. And As long as we love ourselves more than God and others, we're not converted. And we'll ultimately throw Christ under the bus to protect ourselves as Peter did that night. But Peter went out after that wet bitterly and was converted. Judas could have been converted, but he didn't. He actually protected self and wouldn't surrender self. So he hung himself.
1: There was a um, little uh, part of the devotion I was reading uh, a couple weeks ago and it said Anytime that you find yourself getting bristled because you think your rights are violated, then take caution because that is a reflection of not a true conversion of your, of your heart and soul. If you're just bristled for your own personal rights... That uh, look at Christ in His example, and uh, He didn't fight for His personal rights. He was out there every day for his
0: others. Him, yep. yep. Perfect. Sunday's lesson, reverse two paragraphs said, Matthew twenty-one, recounting some of the last days of Jesus' earthly ministry, is filled with drama, tension, and excitement. It is also reveals, as the Bible often does, the fearful ability of our hearts to deceive us, and the power of evil of the evil one to blind our minds to the most obvious truths. It's easy for us, looking back, to think, how could those leaders have been so hard, so blind, so indignant in the face of all the evidence that Jesus had given them? Yet we mustn't fool ourselves. Is there any reason to think, even a Seventh-day Adventist, living with so much light, that we are much different? Do we not at times show a hard and callous indifference to the truth, particularly when it interferes with our pet sins and desires and worldliness? Sure, God loves us, Christ died for us, and forgiveness is available to all, but those same words could be said about the people in this chapter, as well as the ones who not only turned their backs on Jesus, but worked against him. How careful we need to be, for we deceive ourselves if we think that we can't be deceived as well. I thought that was well said. Don't you all think that was well said? In the last two sentences from the lesson, it says, on the Sunday's lesson, it says, how sad... Those who should have been teachers of others were the ones who had the most to learn and in many cases never learned it. When they finally do, it will be too late. What do you think about that? you think the lesson's right again? I think the lesson's right again, right on. So, if this is in fact true, that many times the teachers are the ones who have much to learn, how do we apply this reality to our personal life? How do we wisely use this insight and this, and this wisdom?
3: Study for ourselves.
0: Thank you. Did you hear what she said? Study for ourselves. This is out of Review and Herald, June 18, 1889. And it says, We must study the truth for ourselves. No man should be relied upon to think for us. No matter who he is or in what position he may be placed, we are not to look upon any man as a criterion, for us, how about a woman? Is a woman okay to look upon and do our thinking for us? No. Yeah. no. So, uh, we are to counsel together and be subject to one another, but at the same time we are to exercise the ability God has given us in order to learn what is truth. Each one of us must look to God for divine enlightenment. We must individually develop a character that will stand the test in the day of God. So, would that apply to prophets as well? Yes. Should we look to prophets to do our thinking for us? No. Should we surrender our thinking to prophets? I'm going to tell you, what I've discovered um, when, when dealing with, there's certain mindsets out there, particularly certain types of education, educate people away from evidence-based thinking to claims-based, proclamation-based thinking. Do you understand the difference between a claim and a proclamation and evidence Here's a claim and a proclamation. And, and what happens, the reason they do this is because accepting the Bible as holy and inspired, then any words in the Bible are accepted without thinking. That becomes a claim. For instance, God is love. That's a claim. That's not evidence. The evidence is the life of Christ. That's evidence. That's not a claim. And of course, God's dealing with humanity through history, recorded in Scripture, and through our own personal experience. That becomes evidence. And that evidence then gives meat and power to the words God is love. And now we know what love looks like because Christ has shown us what love looks like. But without that, we don't know. And so in Old Testament scriptures, there's lots of places where God raises his voice and says, I will burn, I will raise, I will heat the fire, I will pile up the wood, I will burn the bronze pot, you will feel the full force of my anger and wrath, blah, 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 blah. God is saying these things. These are claims. These are words. These are proclamations. You have to go and say, now what happened? What transpired? What occurred? And you'll find that what happened was God removed his hand of protection, the Babylonians or the Assyrians or somebody else came, or the scorpions came in and the snakes came in, and uh, you're finding that God's protection is withdrawn when they rebel, and then others come in and do harm and damage. So
2: you're saying some of the claims would be interpretive based on those people's perceptions of are saying.
0: Yes, I'm saying that there are certain schools of thought that teach people to take the words at face value without actually stepping back and co- uh, correlating those words with the evidences of history to understand the true meaning.
2: Even within the scripture, some of the way the phraseology may be claims-oriented, maybe their perception rather than evidence of what God actually was doing.
0: At that In 2 Kings 22, where um, Ahab uh, asked uh, Jehoshaphat, to uh, join him to uh, go to battle against Ramoth Gilead. And Jehoshaphat says, there's a prophet of the Lord we can call upon. And Ahab says, oh, I hate the prophets of the Lord. They always say bad things about me. Remember, Ahab's worshiping Baal. And they say, yeah, there's one. Let's get one in here. And they call in Micaiah. And Micaiah says, um, after he tells Ahab, go, you'll, you'll do fine. And Ahab says, look, I've told you. So don't mess with me. Tell me what really the real deal is. Because <laughs> Micaiah was messing with him. And so Micaiah says, well, uh, the Lord called a council and said to his uh, his spirits in heaven, How can we lure Ahab into battle against Ramath Gilead where Ahab will be killed? And one spirit said this and one spirit said that. And finally a spirit stood up before the Lord and said, I know what we can do. I can go and be a a lying spirit in the mouth of of, of Ahab's prophets and lure him into battle where he'll be killed. And the Lord said, go and do it. Now you can read this. It's right in scripture. So do we have Lord in heaven sending his angels down to make people lie? (laughs) Do we take this literal, or do we understand, well, then why was this said? And when you understand the principle of what happened here, then you can understand so much of the rest of the scripture, it seems hard to understand. What happened here? Who was Micaiah speaking to? Who was he speaking to? Ahab. Ahab. What's Ahab's mindset, and what does Mahab believe about God? Does Ahab believe in a loving, gentle, Jesus-like God? Or does he believe in a power over, authoritarian, dictator, powerful God? Right? And so in order to warn Ahab away, the idea was placed, God caused your prophets to lie. The message you're getting from your prophets is false. Okay? It's a false message because God has made it. Okay? Because he, everything's attributed to God in his eyes. God had to make him do it. So now this is what's really happened. Don't trust those prophets. Don't go to battle. It was really a warning to protect him. It wasn't a revelation of how God works in heaven. And when we understand that, then we can understand a lot of the things, like Revelation chapter 14, about the, uh, the third angel's message. So a lot of the things can come into focus. Who's he talking to? What's the message? What's the purpose? What's happening? Okay. Well, this is another one. This is out of Reflecting Christ, page 396. Satan is constantly endeavoring to attract attention to man in place of God. He leads the people to look at bishops, pastors, professors of theology as their guides instead of searching the scripture to learn their duty for themselves. Wow. Would, would that be all theology professors other than the Adventist ones? Or does that include all denominations? And then um, out of Review and Herald, June 7, 1906, there are today thousands, 1906, that's 100 years ago, today thousands of professors of religion who can give no other reason for points of faith which they hold than that they were so instructed by their religious leaders. Think that through. Why are they teaching you what they're taught? Well, because that's what they were taught. That's why each one of you have been given a mind, an individuality, ability to reason. And How many times have I said in here over the years, don't believe anything I say because I say it. My job isn't to tell you what to think. My job is to get you to think and to search and reason and come, t- and come to the conclusions for yourself based on the evidences. All Tuesday's lesson. Tuesday's lesson. Let's jump to Tuesday. Second paragraph. Have you ever noticed that some of the meanest, nastiest, and most hateful people are professed Christians? Or that some of the most judgmental, condemnatory, hypocritical, and downright evil people are those who go to church, who claim the promises of salvation and profess assurance of salvation? Man, our our lesson's doing a good job this week, isn't it? <laughs> Have you noticed this to be true? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Again, how can this be? And uh, maybe a better question is, how can we, you and me in this room, ensure that we're not among that group?
1: And also helpfully win them to the true relationship that is the basis of it, versus the uh, uh, the self centered position there.
0: What's the difference between playing church and being a church? Heart. Heart. What, what difference of heart?
3: The right
1: relationship the basis. Beverly. I think one evidence would be when people do sin in the church, you wouldn't be there condemning them, you would be there helping them get through it and to change... To change their focus and point them to God with healing.
0: So, in a church that functions as God's design, it's a place of healing, a place, and I'm, the difference that I wrote down was simply one word: love. Mm-hmm. Love is the difference. We love others more than self. So, when somebody stumbles and falls, we're there to build them up, to encourage, to help overcome, to support. Whereas, when we play church, we're there to show how holy we are. So that when somebody messes up, we want to point it out. We want to spread it around. We want to criticize. We want to get them fired from their job. We want—you see the difference? Play church. We want to show how holy we are. Therefore, we become pharisaical. Uh, we become petty, petty gossips and, and, and spies, and we begin criticizing. When we live church, we—when we discover somebody's struggling, we want to reach out and help, build up, encourage. Would you agree or disagree? Yes.
1: That you just given him here. I think it's also very helpful when we're talking with people and when we're sharing with them that we share with them the flip side of it. Of this is what you hear and see about God and how He went through His hand. He had the scorpions and the snakes and all this. But what was happening on the other side to require this response of withdrawal to be able to help them?
0: Exactly. And let's exactly.
1: Understand that. Spoiled children falling on the ground, having a fit, or ignoring or creating the circumstance that require the parent to say, I can't help you right now. You're not able to see it right now. Excellent. It, that helps us to see the true heart of God versus looking at the action of the moment and saying, Oh, my goodness, we did to do that? Versus the whole picture. Beautiful. The um, same people, uh, in individual situations as well, uh, what created the situation and then that loving God that still wants them back.
0: I think it's well said, well said, and it comes down to truly, do you love that person? Do you want to see them restored, or do you actually get glee when you find out that somebody in leadership has made a mistake? Oh, goody, I can't wait to call, tell everybody. (laughs) Do you grieve, or do you rejoice? Yes.
3: I was just reading this week, I ran across something um, where Ellen White was talking about self-denial and her description of what it means to practice self-denial had everything to do with how you relate to people and 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 instead of moving about by impulse you know like with a difficult person or whatever that you would deny yourself and move about in a loving way and i was just i, I was amazed at that emphasis compared to an emphasis of you know
0: not having cheese
3: yeah don't eat too much <laughs> don't eat this don't eat that you know whatever it might be that emphasis, it was all about people and how you relate to people, and she defined that as what self-denial is.
0: Did you all hear that? Yeah. Yeah, and that's exactly right. So Isaiah does the same thing. If you read Isaiah, it describes the same thing of, I will show you what a fast is in Isaiah. It is ministering to the poor, the needy, the widow, the homeless. This is what the fast that the Lord has for us. Not, uh, you know, doing the things of avoiding the, the, the chicken on Thursdays or something, or the meat on Fridays or whatever it is. Okay. All right. All um, right. Bottom paragraph, it says, who are we to judge hearts? We shouldn't judge, but God does, should, and will. Seventh-day Adventists call it the investigated judgment, and it is revealed in this parable, the parable of the wedding. And then go to Thursday's lesson, the last three Paragraphs. Starting, um, it's so important that we keep the big picture in mind, the interest of the whole universe in what's going on here with sin, rebellion, salvation, and God's plan to deal with everything in an open, just, and fair way. The very idea of a judgment of any kind presupposes some kind of investigation, does it not? Look at Genesis 3, 9 through 19. From the first moment after sin entered, God himself got directly involved, asking questions to answers that he already knew. Just as this investigation wasn't for himself, it helped Adam and Eve understand the gravity of what they had done, the same can be said of in the investigative judgment. It doesn't reveal anything new to God, for it's, it's for the benefit of others. Just as in this Genesis judgment, there, where God's grace overruled the death sentence, his grace does the same for all God's true followers now and in the judgment when they need it the most. Thoughts? Thoughts? Any ideas? Did y'all read this this week? Yeah, the investigative judgment is an area where sometimes people get confused in our church.
1: The part that I thought was a little ambiguous and could be interpreted in different ways was that sentence that said, uh, where God's grace overruled
2: the death sentence. Um, That interaction can have different... uh, Yes. Depending on how you think about that.
0: The death sentence, yes. I agree with you. Um, I actually liked a couple of things that the the quarterly did in this paragraph. They did a couple of nice things pointing out that God's inquiry wasn't for his benefit. He didn't need it. It was for the benefit of others. I think it's right on the money. And so when God went to the garden and asked questions, was he really conducting an investigation? I think they're stretching it. They point out the truth. God was asking questions not because he needed to know but for the benefit of others. Well, then is it really an investigation or is it something else? At this point, is he investigating or is he intervening? Right. Yes.
2: He's making it known to those around. I say like it's a revelation. It? It, it's a revelation because if he truly knows the heart, if he knows everything else, then it's not for his benefit. It's for those who do not know. It's the whole book of Job.
0: Well, let me put it this way. What or who is actually being investigated? God God. Ah. See, that's what's being investigated. Yes.
2: Don't you think we have a whole problem of discussing this when we use the legal uh, language? So you fit it into the legal language, so it's investigated. It's judgmental. If you could leave out that language, then maybe you could talk about it easier.
0: And if we come back, though, there is an aspect of investigation that has nothing to do with legal. If somebody accused your, your spouse of cheating on you, and your spouse is completely innocent of the charge. I had not cheated at all. But the person who told you this was your brother or sister. Someone you also love and trust. And they, they were crying. And they showed video that they doctored on their computer to make it look like they were doing something. Now, if you love your your spouse is innocent. Your spouse wants to clear up any doubt in your mind. Wouldn't your spouse invite you to investigate? Please investigate. Now, the spouse who is innocent doesn't need to investigate. They need to reveal. God is not investigating. We've got this backwards. Most always, always, God's up there conducting investigation. No, He's not. God's revealing, revealing, revealing. He wants us to investigate Him. Who was Satan's charges against in, in heaven to start the whole thing? It was against God. It was against God. Do you think
1: this could possibly be called the rest of the story.
0: Yes, the rest of the story. That's exactly right. Um, Are the angels, and think about this, even back in Eden, are the angels and intelligences in the rest of the universe primary concern about whether Adam and Eve sin or don't sin, or is their primary concern is when they sin, how, how is God going to deal with them? What's their primary concern? Isn't it what God's going to do? How's he going to respond? That's the big issue. And so the investigation then, when you understand that and refocus your entire lens and then filter what happened in Genesis 3 through that, we have something else going on. Remember Gen- uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5? We live in a world we don't wage war as the world does. We demolish everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. So some argue that God, just like the lesson is, in Genesis was conducting an investigation and then was conducting a judgment Because he condemned the serpent to crawl and to be crushed. He cursed the ground. He pronounced birth pains on women and subjects to their husband and cast the pair out of the garden. And so there's investigation, there's judgment, and there's punishment. This is how it's often presented, yeah? Is that really the truth? I'm going to say it's all distortion. It's all distortion. Focus the issue back on the question of God. He is demonstrating his character, which has been misrepresented. And what do we see in this case? Even though God knows where they're hiding, he calls out to them. Adam, where are you? Mm-hmm. Well, because he needs to investigate where they are. No, he's not investigating. Why is he calling out?
1: He be out to the
0: because he doesn't want to frighten them to death. I mean, they're already scared. They're, they're new condition. There's fear and guilt and sin. So they've sinned. Their conscience are convicting them. They're feeling naked. They're feeling ashamed. They're frightened. And so God pops up behind the bush. Hey, Adam, what are you doing over here? Boom! They're having a heart attack, right? No. God is calling out to them gently to, the, to approach them in the, in the way that will not frighten them the most. This is showing his grace. And then, after he calls out to them, he begins asking the questions. Adam, who told you you were naked? For what purpose? Well, what are the options here for Adam? In this conversation, who's involved in this conversation? God and Adam. So, who told you, God? The question is, implies an answer. Adam, you didn't hear me say you're naked. You didn't hear me condemn you. You didn't hear me point out your deficits. Adam, that's your own conscience. You're, this is what sin has done to you. You're not the same anymore. You see? So we're getting revelation. God is revealing to the universe. Hey, God didn't condemn them. God didn't come and say, all right, what did you do? Did, you, did I not tell you you weren't supposed to? Yeah.
2: They were naked. And so, I mean, we kind of come with the idea of how did this happen? It's very evident that it has happened. Okay? He's not talking to a fully clothed couple. Yes, Or, or they clothed with fig leaves or whatever. I mean, but
0: the clothing wasn't the issue.
2: No, but I mean, it's it's like the process. How did this happen? Why did it happen? Right. That's more important than what has happened.
0: And how am I relating to you? Am I threatening you? No. So this wasn't an investigation to uncover the facts. It was a revelation. And what does it say about God that he approached them in this way? That he's love. That he's love, yes. It was an investigation,
2: but it was an investigation in a different way than probably most of us think of it. It's like a lawyer in a courtroom. You never ask a question that you don't already know the answer to. So what he's doing is he's, he's, he's asking these questions for, you know, like, like I said, he doesn't need it, but it's for the benefit of someone else. He's presenting his case, but he's doing it in a manner of an investigation,
1: I'd like to look at it slightly differently, though. For example, if a parent comes in, and they see their kid sitting amongst, uh, and there's a broken pot, let's just take that example, and they say, what happened in here? Uh, It gives the, the child the opportunity to choose in their heart to be honest and to continue that I like relationship it. and to say, I'm so sorry I bumped it over, or it gives them a chance in their heart to choose otherwise, and, and so it gives them a chance to, to have their heart decision.
0: Let's take your example and add one element to it. The pot was knocked over and the parents had a um, nanny cam that they saw it from the other room. So they saw exactly what happened. So there's no need to investigate. Right. But they're asking the same question. The rest of the universe was watching says in First Corinthians 4, we are a spectacle, a theater to angels and to men. This was not a mystery to the beings in heaven either. They knew exactly what happened. They saw the, the, the temptation at the tree. They saw the actions. They, they were warned by God. They understood the controversy going on. This was not a mystery as to what happened here to them. So this, these questions were not investigatory in the sense of trying to find out information. They're exactly, I think, what you say on twofold. One, to lead them to have the, the heart to own up to it. and But two, also in the context of the relationship, to show, hey, I'm not here as your enemy. I'm here as your friend.
2: Yeah, well, God's presenting his case. You know, and, and it's, it's done on, in a manner like an investigation, even though truly from God's point of view, it's not an investigation.
0: So mankind is now altered after sin. They're altered. They're not the same, right? They, they're, 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 they're now functioning with a different motive in heart than they had with their creation.
1: But I would like to come back to the thought of it's not only the representative to the universe, but since the sin is the break of the relationship, that this is the opportunity for the healing of the relationship, and that the conversation between the father and the child is a chance to heal that relationship between the two of them. And the rest of the universe, having the opportunity to see this interaction taking place, can learn about both the character that the father put into uh, and have a a seed in the child's heart, but also the loving interaction of the openness of the chance to heal that relationship through every interaction.
0: So I like it. So we're going through this process. Is this an investigation, a judgment, and a punishment? series of events in Genesis 3, which is often represented, or is this something else? Is this a building of a healing relationship with interventions, uh, prescriptions, uh, and, uh, yes?
2: In the right position being malpractice.
0: Okay. So, anyway, so mankind is now altered. Their motives are different than when they, were, when, when they were initially designed. They're motivated by selfishness and fear, and they will die eternally if God does not intervene. If God does nothing, they're going to die. Correct? They're terminal. They have a terminal condition now. So God pronounces the curse on the ground. Was this curse an infliction by God or an announcement of what will be because of their choice? Was he inflicting it and causing it? or was he announcing it of what's going to happen? Well, this is out of um, uh, first Bible commentary, 1086, by Ellen White. Not one noxious plant, not one noxious plant, was pa- placed in the Lord's great garden, but after Adam and Eve sinned, poisonous herbs sprang up. In the parable of the sower, the question was asked of the master, "Did thou, Didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? How then has tares arisen? The master answered, An enemy has done this. All tares are sown by the evil one. Every noxious herb is of his sowing, and by his ingenious methods of amalgamation, he has corrupted the earth with tares. So why did the earth become harder to produce fruit? Where did the weeds and tares and poisonous herbs come from? Was God cursing the earth directly? Or, because of Adam's choice, does Satan now have access to nature? And he begins mucking up with the code.
1: So what you're saying is, before sin, Satan wasn't allowed to do any of that. That's right. But once sin came, then Satan's the one that the planet was allowed, now, his hand...
0: To muck with the code. Well, i
1: never heard it like that before, but that's good. Mm-hmm. Because
2: the humans invited him in and let him spread by their choices. Yes. We actually handed him the, uh, the kingship of the earth.
0: The prince of this world. The prince of this
3: world. Yes. But it so. Completely does away with the guilt of God, of that He cursed the earth. Yes. It does that. Yeah. Completely
0: does
2: away
3: with that.
0: Exactly. And so the next question: Why didn't God intervene to prevent the curse? Why was it permitted, to punish or to bless, to give man work and education? You see, we were the microcosm. As long as mankind remained uh, in in faithfulness and, and, and surrender to the Lord, all nature was under the governorship of Adam. When man rebelled against God and was no longer under God's governorship, nature, which in the microcosm represents the rest of the universe, Adam and Eve represents the Godhead, nature now was in rebellion against man. Because the principle of selfishness, the earth was created to run on the principle of other-centered love. Once Adam and Eve infected themselves with selfishness, it's what Paul says in Romans 8, all nature groans under the weight of sin. Nature now is infected with survival, the fittest instinct, me first, not self-sacrifice. So all nature now is in rebellion against God's rule. And so we read here out of Patriarchs and Prophets, page 59. To Adam the Lord declared, because thou hast hearkened unto thy voice of thy wife, and has eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat. Cursed is the ground for for thy sake. Notice, cursed the ground for your sake. This is a blessing. And it says, under the curse of sin, all nature was to witness to man of the character and results of rebellion against God. When God made man, he made him rule over the earth and all living creatures. So long as Adam remained loyal to heaven, all nature was in subjection to him. But when he rebelled against the divine law, the inferior creatures were in rebellion against his rule. Thus the Lord, in his great mercy, would show men the sacredness of his law. It's a demonstration. It's a lesson book. It's an object lesson. And lead them by their own experience to see the danger of setting aside, even in the slightest degree, the law of love. And the life of toil and care, which would henceforth to, to be man's lot, was appointed in love. This is not a punishment. It's a prescription. It was a discipline rendered needful by his sin. To place a check upon the indulgence of appetite and passion, to develop habits of self-control, it was part of God's great plan of man's recovery from the ruin and degradation of sin. So this was Patriarchs and Prophets, page 60. So do we have investigation, judgment, and punishment? Or do we have revelation of God's character, m- medical diagnoses, what we some could call judgment but not judicial, but a diagnosis of what the problem is, and then an intervention, a prescription, to bring healing, not a not a punishment. This is what's actually happening. And we have seen it through this lens of earthly governments that we have completely distorted the character of God throughout history. So who is really being judged? Us by God, or are we judging God? Who's really being judged? Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 4 says, God, may you be proved right when you are judged. Romans three four. And then in Desire of Ages four sixty eight it says they thought themselves passing judgment on Christ, but in rejecting him they were pronouncing sentence upon themselves. It says um, The lesson is true for all time. Many a man who delights in quibble to quibble, to criticize, seeking for some something to question in the Word of God, thinks that he is thereby giving evidence of his independence of thought and mental acuteness. He supposes that he sits in judgment on the Bible when in truth he is judging himself. Or Desire of Ages 475. The people who beheld the Savior at his advent were favored with a fuller manifestation of the divine presence than the world had ever enjoyed before. The knowledge of God was revealed more perfectly. But in this very revelation, judgment was passing upon men. Their character was tested, their destiny determined. By what? What judged them? how they responded to the truth that was presented to them. Their choices in response. So I, again, have found it helpful to, in when you think about God's judgment, to replace the word judgment with the word diagnose. Physicians judge all the time. And then after we judge the condition, we make judgments about what is the best treatment for them. And thus we read two weeks, three weeks ago when I was here, we read that Elijah hoped that the judgments of God in three and a half years of famine would bring the children of Israel to repentance. So the judgments of God to bring them to repentance? What is that? That is the interventions. The the prescription meted out by God was not designed to punish. It was designed to turn their hearts back to him again to save them. That's a prescription. Yes, Tim.
3: Uh, Maybe instead of the legal terminology of investigation, investigation, uh, judgment and punishment, um, medical terminology works for a better history, assessment, and plan. And I give credit to her. She just said that to
0: So me. say that again. Say it again.
3: Instead of investigation, judgment, and punishment, history, assessment, plan.
0: I like it. History. God takes the history, does the assessment, the diagnosis, and has a plan to treat and heal. Very nice. Her
3: idea,
0: yeah, but that's exactly what's going on, isn't it? <laughs> or do you like the other one better?
3: Well, um,
0: you know in Scripture, what, the imagery that Scripture uses for earthly governments are the image of ferocious and ravenous beasts that tear apart. These are earthly governments. You know all the imagery. The bears, the leopard, the lion, the, the beast with iron claws and iron teeth. Ravenous, destructive beasts that tear things apart. The imagery given to God's kingdom was the Lamb. Okay, And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, look at the kingdoms of the earth. How do they handle misdeeds? What do the kingdoms of the earth call justice? They have investigation, they have trials, they have judgments, they mete out punishments. And we have taken this system and we have projected it on God's kingdom and we have described God's kingdom working like earthly governments. It's not this way. My kingdom is not of this world. How many times did Jesus say that? Over and over again. His kingdom doesn't work this way. Monday's lesson the king's invitation. So, the king's invitation to the feast. Question Who is the king? Who is the king? What, to what is the invitation? We're invited to what?
2: A wedding.
0: A wedding feast. Okay. When does the wedding supper take place? Obviously, after the wedding, right? Okay. Who is the groom? Christ. What is symbolized by the wedding? A wedding is when the groom receives his? Bride. Who's the bride? Church. I'm going to read to you out of Great Controversy, page 426. Because I actually agree with you, and we're going to flesh it out, though. In the summer and autumn of 1844, the proclamation, Behold, the bridegroom comes, was given. The two classes represented by the wise and foolish versions were then developed. One class who looked with joy to the Lord's appearing and who, would, who had been diligently preparing to meet him. Another class that, influenced by fear and acting from impulse, had been satisfied with the theory of truth but were destitute of the grace of God. In the parable, when the bridegroom comes, they that were ready went out to meet, the, meet him to the marriage. The coming of the bridegroom here brought to view takes place before the marriage. The marriage represents the reception of Christ. By Christ of His Kingdom, the Holy City, the New Jerusalem, which is the capital and representative of the Kingdom, is called the Bride, the Lamb's Wife. Said the Angel to John, Revelation twenty-one nine and ten, Come hither, and I will show the show you the Bride, the Lamb's Wife. He carried me away, and in spirit said the Prophet, and showed me that the great uh, showed me that great city, the Holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Clearly, then, the Bride represents the Holy City, and the virgins that go out to meet the Bridegroom are symbols of the Church. In Revelation, the people of God are said to be the guests of the marriage supper. If guests, they cannot be represented also as the bride. Hmm. So what do you think? Is the bride the city and the believers are the guests? Or is the church both the bride and the guests? Well, it's just, what happens at a wedding? What happens at I a mean, What actually transpires at a wedding? What's the main purpose of being there?
3: Union.
0: The union of bride and, bride and groom, two shall become one. We call that at one atonement. Hmm. The day of atonement is the day of the wedding, wouldn't it be? The day where two become one, they're united in heart and love. Does does a marriage require love? At least a godly marriage. Can Christ become one, united in heart, mind, soul, spirit? Can He become one with an inanimate objects and material? Can he become one with a city, a building? Hmm. Can a city love? As far as the the structure, the physical structure. Then is it possible the New Jerusalem is simply a metaphor for the church? Hmm. Well, we read where where out of great controversy, uh, Ellen White says, clearly the bride represents the holy city and the virgins that go out to meet the bridegroom are a symbol of the church. If guests, they cannot represent also as the bride. Okay, that's her writing. I will let her writing, we'll read some more. This is out of Advent Home, page 26. Christ honored the marriage relationship by making it also symbol of the union between him and his redeemed ones. He himself is the bridegroom. The bride is the church, of which, as his chosen one, he says, thou art all, all fair, my love, there is no spot in thee. Or, evangelism, page 318. Very close and sacred is the relation between Christ and his church. He, the bridegroom, and the church, the bride. Or, 7 Bible Commentary 986, The church is the bride, the Lamb's wife. She should keep herself pure, sanctified, holy. Never should she indulge in any foolishness, for she is the bride of the king. Or, 7 Bible Commentary 986, paragraph 2, The church is the bride of Christ, and her members are to yoke up with their leader. So, one place, not the bride. Multiple other places, the church is the bride. Yes?
2: Uh, aren't we described as pillars in, in the church? You know, each, each member is a pillar or a stone that built the church on the foundation of the apostles and the cornerstone of Christ.
0: Revelation, you will be a pillar in the house of God, never again will you leave it. Okay, so what does that mean? We're, we're prisoners in a building in heaven, we can't leave?
2: No, this is going back to the metaphor of wedding the holy city.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So, question: Could the bride in the New Jerusalem actually be the New Jerusalem as a metaphor for the bride, the Church? Yes.
2: Well, the the Church is symbolized in Revelation as a woman. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's an impure woman and a pure
0: woman. That's true. That's true too. So, if you read in Revelation 21 about the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, there are twelve gates, and something is written on the twelve gates. The name of the twelve tribes tribes are written on the twelve gates symbol of people from every nation, kindred, tribe, and people, the, the spiritual Israel, or the walls of the New Jerusalem had 12 foundations, and on the names of the foundations were written something. What were they written on the names of the 12 foundations of the New Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21, 14?
2: Twelve
0: the 12 apostles are the names of the 12 foundations. And so in Ephesians two nineteen and 22, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And what else does it say about Revelation and the new Jerusalem that it's corner has? The, the pearly gates, which are the, the 12 tribes, built on the apostles, and inside there is no temple because God and Christ are its temple. Why? This is the dwelling place of God. This is where he dwells. And where does he dwell? We are being built together into a temple for the dwelling place of God. So, thoughts about this. How do we put the pieces together? What happens first in a wedding? Is it the feast and the rejoicing, or the union of two hearts together in sacred matrimony. 1844 began the period of the hearts being joined together in sacred matrimony with our groom. at one minute, at one minute, at unity, healing, restoration, bringing a church together, the people, healing, restoring, cleansing, preparing a people ready. It's, it's, the metaphors are all the same. It's the same as when it says... And when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in His people, He will come to get them as His own. Same thing: healing, restoring, writing the second, co- the, the new covenant, I'll write My law on your hearts and minds. No one will, no further will a man need to say to his brother, "Know the Lord," for we'll all know Him. We'll know Him. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave a son. You see, no, we'll all know Him. We'll have the intimacy. Uh, this is life eternal. They might know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, and now sent. This is at one onement, coming back into union, knowledge of God connected of hearts and minds, being in Christ, no condemnation for those who are in Christ, where our memory verse started today. And then when that happens, when the people of God are settled into the truth, so much so that they cannot be shaken, intellectually and spiritually, the seal of God on their heart, we are married to our groom. Then he comes and takes us home for the feast. What do you all think? Or do you think it's more sensible that he's actually married to a, uh, a, a building or a big city made out of inanimate material? That doesn't make sense to me at all.
1: Rediscovering, reclaiming of the loving relationship that so distorted over time, and then by rediscovering and reclaiming that loving relationship, having that full heart, heart shift, and you're
0: at one. So, I like it. So, in closing, the wedding feast analogy, the invitation goes out. Who makes all the wedding arrangements? In, in the in the in the parable, who made all the wedding arrangements? Yeah. 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 And what was the role of the guest? To
3: show
0: up. Show up. Yeah. To, to, to show up in the, in, in the a garment that was provided for them at no cost. So our, our, our role is simply to accept what he provides. That's it. There's not a hard work there. So metaphor, in a different metaphor, what is the role of the sick person in relationship to the doctor who has procured a remedy that will heal them? to accept the free remedy just accept it take it it does its work we don't do it the work our response is to stay in union with him accept what he has done open the heart receive it and follow where he leads our gracious heavenly father we thank you that you have gone to such incredible lengths to reach us and my minds have been so confused about you we have been indoctrinated with so many different weird ideas that sometimes we live in fear of you lord And I know that must break your heart for your children to be afraid of you when you love us so much. I pray that your spirit we pour it out. May we have our minds open to discern the truth from the error. May we be transformed to love you first, to be truly converted in heart, to love others more than self. May you give us skill, ability, wisdom to go out and communicate clearly the truths about your kingdom. And may this message go around the world to lighten the world that you will come soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen.
3: Amen.